Philippians chapter 3, in verse 7, where Paul writes, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 10. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. If I could call your attention to the very end of verse 8, where we read these words, that I may win Christ. That I may win Christ. Being the native of Wisconsin that I am, I'm very familiar with um, a man that is a part of sports history in the state of Wisconsin. Some of you maybe know the name Vince Lombardi. He was the coach of the legendary Green Bay Packers, the man after whom the Super Bowl trophy is named. Uh, he is credited with a saying that goes like this. He was a very intense coach, okay? And these were his words. Winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. <laughs> you kind of pick up on his attitude and philosophy, don't you? Winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. My own attitude toward that kind of philosophy would not be to necessarily agree or disagree with it. My response to it would be, well, it depends on what you've won. Paul refers to the trophy or the crown of an athlete as being something that is corruptible. So we read in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. You see a vast difference here then in that verse between a corruptible crown and an incorruptible crown. A corruptible crown would be a crown that pertains to this world and is something that will perish with this world. All of the Super Bowl trophies that have been accumulated over the years by various teams, they will go up and smoke with the rest of this world in due time. When it comes to being a prize that this world affords, I would most definitely disagree with the notion that Winning is the only thing. Those that are taken up with winning in the things of this world really, at the end of the day, pursue nothing more than vain glory. 
And I call it vain, not in the sense that it might be morally sinful, but only in the sense that it's temporary, it's transient, which is the real meaning of vain. Like our lives in this world, it is but a vapor. The Lord himself addressed the issue of such prizes when he asked in Matthew 16 and verse 26, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? So with regard to the prizes or the wealth or the prestige of this world, I would not say that winning is the only thing. On the other hand, when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to salvation itself, I would wholeheartedly concur with the philosophy that winning is both everything and the only thing. Paul certainly knew this. It was this kind of win he had in mind when he wrote in Philippians 3.8, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Paul's aim then obviously was to win Christ. Now on the surface of this text, you might be tempted to scratch your head and say to yourself, I thought Paul had won Christ. Wasn't winning Christ the blessed result of that day when Christ appeared to him on the Damascus Road and blinded him with a dazzling display of his glory? Hadn't Paul won Christ when Ananias came to him and said to him, Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord? Certainly Paul had won Christ on that day. But with that win in mind, I think the conclusion becomes inescapable that winning Christ is not a one-time event. Winning Christ becomes, or should become, the ongoing quest of every true believer. I think you could say that this statement about winning Christ runs parallel to the desire Paul expresses two verses later in verse 10 when he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Winning him is knowing him more fully, more intimately. After the line of thought that we considered this morning. Winning him is experiencing a greater measure of the peace and joy that he intends his people to have. Winning him amounts to knowing more of his resurrection power. You begin to understand why it could be said that in terms of winning Christ, winning is everything and winning is the only thing. Now, I have to admit that when I checked into the grammatical construction of the phrase that I may win Christ, I fully expected to find that the verb win would be a present tense verb, which would plainly indicate that we're dealing with something that is continuous. That's what the present tense in the, uh, 
present tense verb in the Greek indicates something that is ongoing, something that continues. I was surprised, therefore, to discover that the verb is actually an aorist tense verb, which indicates a one-time action. I was puzzled by this and had to be careful not to try to squeeze the exegesis of the text in order to fit my own sermon purposes, something a preacher needs to resist. Now, the context clearly indicates continuous winds, but the grammar doesn't seem to fit the context on that score. But then the thought occurred to me that both ideas hold true. There is a sense in which you win Christ, and there's also a sense in which you keep on winning Christ. My mind was drawn to the hymn in which is contained the prayer, Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's table land, a higher plane than I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Here was Paul's desire, and here is what the Christian's desire should be. I want to reach a higher plane. And I not only want to reach that plane, but I want to be planted on that higher plane. I don't want to reach higher ground just to lose it through worldliness and backsliding. I want there to be something firm to it. There's the finality of the quest being planted on that higher plane. But once you are planted on that higher plane, it doesn't take you long to discover that you can go higher still. So there's the continuity of the quest. It's as if you scale the mountain to reach a plane on higher ground, and you rejoice in reaching that plane, but you don't settle there too long because you know that there is even more of the glory of Christ to be perceived and known, and so you scale the same mountain to an even higher level, and so your life as a Christian should be marked as taking that higher ground, or to use the words of our text, you win Christ. What I'm wondering this afternoon is whether or not Paul's spiritual quest is yours. Or to put the matter to you more directly, do you want to win Christ? Having won him through your initial conversion, do you desire to win him still? I have a great fear that while Christians may show remarkable initiative and ambition in a lot of other things, they seem to be lacking in this kind of spiritual ambition that would compel them to be seeking more of Christ, winning him in an even greater way. This morning we read from Exodus chapter 34, and I've at times referred to Moses as an excellent example of a man who possessed incredible spiritual ambition. One of the reasons that passage is one of my favorite. I think Paul and Moses would share a lot in common in this respect. 
In Exodus 33, you find Moses in the place of prayer, pleading with God to yet own his people, even though they had fallen into abominable idolatry and God was on the brink of disowning them. Moses pleads with God to own them still, and through his intercession, the Lord forgives his people, and through Moses' further intercession, he obtains from the Lord the promise that the Lord would still go with them into the promised land. But then we read how Moses would go further still, and here is where his spiritual ambition really manifests itself after obtaining so much favor and forgiveness and promise from God. He then prays in Exodus 33 and verse 18, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Here then is an Old Testament example, you could say, of what it means to win Christ. And so again, I put the, the question and the challenge to you. Would you win Christ? Would you make the hymn writer's quest your own when he writes, more about Jesus would I know, more of his grace to others show, more of his saving fullness see, more of his love who died for me. I want to focus on this theme this afternoon of winning Christ. And in focusing on this theme, I'm praying that the Lord would stir your heart with such a desire. May it come the testimony of each one here today that like Paul, you would count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And in considering this theme, I want to raise and answer a couple of questions. I think I'm only going to cover one of them today. And that is, what do you actually win? when you win Christ. What do you win by winning Christ? Well, looking at the subpoints and the order in which they occur, you could say first that by winning Christ, you win the blessing of being found. The blessing of being found. Note the words of our text with the beginning of verse 9, that I may win Christ and be found in him. To be found is to be saved. To be found presupposes the idea of first being lost. You know the words to the hymn, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Christ places a particular emphasis on the idea of being found in Luke chapter 15, where you have three parables that all pertain to things being lost and then found. There's the parable of the lost sheep. The shepherd finds his lost sheep, and the lesson of that parable is that there's joy in heaven over each sinner who repents. Then there's the parable of the lost coin which is found after the lady who loses it, lights a candle and sweeps all around and seeks diligently to find it. In that parable also there follows a time of rejoicing. 
And then there's the parable of the prodigal son, where the father says regarding his son, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I had never thought about the fact that in each instance there is joy over that which was lost and then found. It certainly follows, doesn't it, that to win Christ and be found gives us cause for joy and rejoicing. But notice as well that not only do those that win Christ gain the blessing of being found, but more particularly, they are found in him. Verse says, apart from him, you would not want to be found. Indeed, you would rather be covered by the rocks and the mountains than to be found. To be found apart from him, you see, is to be found by sin and in sin. You know the text in the book of Numbers where Moses charges the children of Reuben and the children of Gad that if they not, did not go forth to help their brethren in their quest to conquer Canaan, that their sin would find them out. So we read in Numbers 32, verse 23, But if ye will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. That's a text, you know, that ought to cause fear in our hearts to contemplate sin. We, we think that we get away with it so easily when no one can detect it. And yet God knows it. And sin will find us out, if not in this life, certainly in the next. You could also say that to be found apart from Christ is to be found naked and exposed. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 2, For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven, if so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. Oh, our desire is to be found, but it is to be found in Him, to be found in Christ. If you're in the meeting today without Him, how you need to be found in Him how lost you are apart from him. But remember what I said earlier in my introduction. Winning Christ is something that you should desire again and again. There's a continuous aspect to winning him. And so it follows that there is a continuous need to be found in him and of him. Let me be as practical and honest as I can with you this afternoon. There are people, many Christians, some even in our own church family, I fear, that name the name of Christ, that need to win him again and need to be found again in him. Being found in him, you see, is the language of union with him. One commentator I read cross-referenced John 8, 56 with Philippians 3, 9. Listen to that verse. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. 
Here is our union then with him, this mutual indwelling. This is the language of intimacy. Some of you here this afternoon may have all but lost him. You're so far from him that it may lead others and may even lead you to wonder if you've ever really won him at all. If you can be content to be lost and away from him, if you can accept his absence from your life, then maybe you're not really a Christian. In the third chapter of the Song of Solomon, you find a passage with allegorical significance that points to Christ and his bride, the church. In that chapter, the bride has lost the bridegroom. Listen to what this verse says. By night on my bed, I sought him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. Is the bride content with such a state as I'm afraid some Christians may be content? Well, hardly. We go on to read, I will rise now and go about the city in the streets, and in the broad ways I will seek him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. The watchmen that go about the city found me, to whom I said, Saw ye him whom my soul loveth? It was but a little that I passed from them, but I found him whom my soul loveth. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. Here is the picture of a follower of Christ who has won Christ again. She was not content with his absence. She could bear her condition. Uh, she could not bear her condition of being estranged. She must find him. She sets out to find him. And after a prolonged effort and search, she does find him and is found of him. And she enters into the joy of her union again. You probably heard it said or know it in your experience that one of the things that can lead to marriages becoming dead or stale is the notion that you no longer need to win your spouse. You won her years ago, and you married her. She's yours, and you are hers. And over time, you take each other so much for granted that the very idea of winning her again seems outrageous. If you're in that condition, may... God have mercy on your marriage, and may you find the grace, each spouse, to win their spouse again. Now, what's true in marriage between husband and wife is no less true in your relationship to Christ. You need to win him, and you need to be found in him anew, and you shouldn't be content with anything less. But what does it mean to win him? It means to gain the blessing anew of being found in him. And in close connection to being found in him is the way that you're found in him. And this takes us to the heart of the gospel. When you win him and are found in him, you win righteousness. 
Look again at the text beginning in verse 8, the end of verse 8. That I may win Christ and be found in him. How do you want to be found in him, Paul? Not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. You see how Paul is describing this finding both negatively and positively? He wants to be found not having his own righteousness, which is of the law. Other men may be impressed with that kind of righteousness. In fact, Paul had stated earlier that before men he was, in fact, blameless. But he saw the need for something far greater if he was going to be accepted by God. He saw the need for the imputed righteousness of Christ. Oh, let me be found in him. But in this particular manner, having his righteousness imputed to me. Here then is where winning Christ looks ahead when it comes to that judgment day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. On that day, you want to be found with righteousness. You want to be found with the righteousness that comes by faith. In the very first verse of Psalm 4, you find God being addressed in a way that he is nowhere else addressed in all the Bible. Listen to verse 1 in Psalm 4. Hear when I call, O God of my righteousness. Isn't that a wonderful way to be able to call upon God? We call on him with grateful hearts for being the provider of our righteousness. Apart from his provision, all our righteousnesses are his filthy rags. And we call on him as the one who leads us in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Here is how we win Christ based on the 23rd Psalm. He restores us. When we confess our sins and then he leads us again to green pastures beside still waters and he leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What do we win then when we win Christ? We win the blessing of being found and not just being found but being found in him. And by being found in him, we gain the blessing of righteousness. Oh, there is much more that we win when we win Christ. I'll only mention them here in closing. We win resurrection power, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, Paul says in verse 10. We win the fellowship of his sufferings, and we win advancement in our sanctification, being made conformable unto his death. Let me highlight one more very important blessing that we win when we win Christ. Notice the words of verse 14 where Paul writes, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is referring here to the high calling of glory when he would be taken from this world and brought home to Christ. What a contrast that is to the natural man's outlook. 
The natural man does all he can to extend his years in this world of woe because it's all he has. He has no high calling to press toward. He tries to run in the opposite direction of a high calling. But rather than be governed by the dread of physical death, Paul saw in it a high calling, a calling not to death but to life, a calling to heaven, a calling to the full enjoying of God forever. You begin to see then why winning Christ is everything as well as the only thing. You win so much in terms of spiritual blessings. You win so much in terms of your future. Oh, how you need to win Christ. You need to win him in such a way that you secure salvation, or you need to win him in such a way that your spiritual blessings rule more of your heart. I hope you'll be motivated to make Paul's quest your own and that you'll seek to win Christ. May God help us all so to seek him. Let's close then in prayer. And let's all pray. Oh Lord, we thank thee today that we can, most of us here, say with the hymn writer, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. We thank thee, O Lord, that we have been found of thee. And that in being found of thee, we also found thee by thy grace. O Lord, I pray that thou wilt help us to pursue this same goal that Paul pursued of winning Christ. May our spiritual ambition be intensified so that we can indeed know more and more of him of whom to know is everlasting life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.